In the summer of 2007, I had the opportunity to serve on the staff of a Christian camp in northern Wisconsin. And in the middle of that summer camp season, some of the staff of the camp decided to sponsor a triathlon among the camp staff as a, as a fundraiser and as a way to foster unity among the staff. And, and I thought to myself, okay, well, that sounds fun. I can, I can run. I mean, this was like, you know, 45 pounds ago. I can run. I can, I can bike. But you know what? I don't know that I could swim the distance that uh, was required to be part of this triathlon. I'm not a great swimmer. And one of the lifeguards overheard me talking that way. And he said, well, I'll, I'll teach you how to swim longer distance. That's no problem. Why don't we, let's meet out at the Camp Lake this Saturday after the camp week's over after lunch. And I'll swim with you across the lake and make sure that you're okay. I'll be there the entire time. I'll swim alongside you. And I thought... Okay, yeah, this guy knows what he's doing. He's a camp certified lifeguard. So it's awesome. So we met, sure enough, after lunch that Saturday. And he said, he, it's not a huge lake, but he looked over across the lake and he said, you see that spot in the middle? It's actually a shallow area right in the middle of the lake. Let's swim out till there. And then we'll take a break and then we'll swim the rest of the way. And again, I will be with you the entire time. You guys know where this is going, don't you? So we took off swimming and when I say he left me in the dust or in his wake immediately, friends, he left me in his wake immediately. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know if I'm just that slow of a swimmer or what, but he was so far ahead of me, not even close to swimming with me. And I got about 30 yards out and I realized there is no way in the world I'm making it out to that shallow spot. And so I was about 30, 40 yards out, and I just turned around and started swimming back toward the shoreline. And all of a sudden, it felt like every muscle in my body just shut down. And I began flailing around in the water, and I even went under a few times. And I literally thought in that moment I was going to drown there in the lake. And I was screaming his name, Matt! Every time I'd come up for air, Matt! And finally, he heard me, and then he began sprinting back toward me. And just about the time that he got maybe 10 or 15 yards away, after I'd gone down and back a few times just trying to save my energy, I felt my, ground, I felt my feet touch the dirt at the bottom of the lake floor. And immediately all the lunch that was in me was out of me and I was safe. I, needless to say, was not a happy camper with Matt. Matt and I <laughs> were not on good terms maybe for a little while. And I thought to myself, you call yourself a lifeguard. I'm not sure whose life you were trying to guard in that moment. In that moment... I realized that as, as well-meaning as, as Matt was, I could not trust him. He gave me his word that he wouldn't leave me in the moment of my apprehension about swimming across the lake, and yet the moment we started, he left me to flounder, and I nearly died. I wonder if there's been a time in your life when you felt utterly alone and helpless. A time when you wondered if anyone really understood what you're going through or what you're about to face. I suspect that all of us have felt that way at some point. Perhaps you feel like that today. Maybe you've come to church this morning, you've, you've put on a good face, but it is simply to mask the pain or the fear or the guilt that no one knows about. 
Become, because no one knows, you feel isolated and alone. Friends, you know one of the greatest gifts of the gospel that we as Christians enjoy is that we have a God who is with His people. He is with us. Our salvation isn't merely fire insurance or even the mere forgiveness of our sin, but the relationship with the triune God who is as committed to His people as He is committed to His own glory. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And in those very moments of uncertainty or fear or guilt, our God draws near. And that's what we're going to discover in our passage this morning. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Jumping back into Genesis chapter 28, it's on page 22 of the Bible underneath your chairs. When we left off in Genesis a few weeks ago in chapter 27, we saw firsthand the unraveling of a family. Through Isaac's spiritual dullness and selfishness, through Rebekah's scheming, through Jacob's deception, and through Esau's bitterness, the family of Isaac was ripped apart. Remember that, that even before Jacob and Esau were born, God had set His love upon Jacob. He intended to bring salvation for the world, not through Esau, the firstborn, but through Jacob's line. But instead of relying on God's promise, Rebekah and Jacob schemed and lied and tricked Isaac into blessing Jacob and not Esau. And Esau became enraged and intended in due time to kill his brother Jacob. And remember, Rebekah overheard the plot, and so she instructed Jacob, run for your life. Go to my family in Haran, to, to my brother Laban, and stay with them until your brother's rage cools off. And that brings us to chapter 28. Our text this morning is verses 10 to 22, but I want to read the first few verses of chapter 28 to further help set the context and make some comments as we go. Genesis 28, verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him again and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now friends, before Jacob started his journey to Haran, to Padam Aram, Isaac once again prayed a blessing over Jacob. This time it was not because of Jacob's deceit, but because Finally, for Isaac, something had clicked into gear spiritually in which he understood that Jacob was indeed supposed to receive God's blessing, not Esau. He was God's elect. The blessing of God that would one day bless the world and undo the curse of sin would extend to the world through Jacob. And so Isaac warns his son not to marry the Canaanite women. Just as, remember, Abraham had instructed his servant when he found Isaac a wife, don't select a wife from the Canaanite women. They're under God's curse. They're going to be judged, as Genesis 9 says. So Jacob dare not marry among those who are under God's curse. Instead, Isaac instructs him to marry one of the daughters of Laban, Rebekah's brother. Let's jump back into verse 3. Here's the prayer. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May He give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land and of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. This ought to sound familiar to you by now, right? Isaac prays for nothing less than the blessing of Abraham for his son. We see these essential ingredients of God's initial promise to Abraham. You see that? Land, 
offspring blessing. Land, offspring, blessing. And notice that Isaac uses the language of Genesis 1 in God's blessing. Of Adam, may God Almighty, El Shaddai, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply. That's Genesis 1, right? So that you may become a company. That's the word for assembly, a congregation of peoples. Isaac asks for nothing less than God's purpose to redeem fallen humanity and to reverse the curse for that purpose to be worked out through his son Jacob. That's what he was asking for. That all God's promises made to Abraham and repeated to him, to Isaac, might now be dispensed to the world through Jacob. That Jacob's offspring might possess the land and bless the world. Verse 4, Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. And that brings us to our main text this morning. We're going to skip over verses 5 through 9, and we're going to start again in verse 10. Let's read together Genesis 28, 10 to 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night before the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a tenth, a full tenth to you. I think the structure of this passage is fairly easy to see. Verses 10 to 17 contain the Lord's appearance to Jacob in a dream as he slept. And then verses 16 to 22, excuse me, verses 10 to 15, and then verses 16 to 22 contain Jacob's response to what he saw. And yet, digging even deeper into this section, notice how the two sections really do parallel each other. Just, just let your eyes scan over the text again. The word place is mentioned three times in verse 11, and then, and then mirrored three times in 16, 17, and 19. Stones as a headrest are mentioned in both, both verses 11 and 18. 
In verse 15, God promises to be with Jacob and to guard him and to bring him back into the land and to never leave him. And then Jacob invokes those very promises in his vow in verses 20 to 21. Clearly, the center of this passage is God's promises given to Jacob in his dream and specifically his promise to be with him and to never leave him. If you're taking notes, here's the main idea of the passage. I try to do this every week when I preach to make the main idea of the passage, the main idea of the sermon, God willing. Here it is. A little longer, so I'll repeat it twice. A little longer. No matter how uncertain your circumstances or how fearful your path or how grievous your sin, rest assured that God's promises are grounded in His grace and secured by His presence. No matter how uncertain your circumstances or how fearful your path or how grievous your sin, rest assured that God's promises are grounded in His grace and secured by His presence. Two points this morning flowing out of that main point. Number one, God's promises are grounded in His grace. Number two, God's promises are secured by His presence. Friends, once again, I pray that as we look at this book of Genesis, this book of beginnings, we see in living color the unfolding promises of God to His people. Our God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. That's who He is. And I pray that through His Word today, our hearts, which are so often fretful and fearful and guilt-ridden, might find rest in God's grace and in His presence with us. So let's look at this first point. God's promises are grounded in His grace. Verse 10 sets the context, right? Jacob left his family home in Beersheba at the southern tip of Canaan, and he was to travel all the way to Haran in the north of modern-day Syria. It's a four to 500-mile journey. You know, today that's a day trip, right? But back then, that's a month-long trip across Canaan, and then up into Aram. Notice that in verse 10, Moses calls Jacob's destination Haram. He didn't call it this time Padam Aram. Why is that? Because if you remember back, Haran was the place that Abraham was when God called him and made his promises to him. So from, from a human standpoint, guys, I think we're meant to see something really disturbing happen, right? Jacob is going in the wrong direction from human vantage. He's heading in the reverse of Abraham. He's exiting the promised land, not entering it. Perhaps Jacob wondered in this moment, would he ever return to Canaan? Would the blessing given to him by his father truly be his? Or would it be Esau's who remained in the land? He's all alone, a virtual fugitive on a dusty road to Haran. You know, when Jacob lay down in the dirt with the stone version of a sleep number pillow, I imagine he must have felt isolated and fearful and unsure of what the future would bring. But it's there that God met him. Friends, understand this. We're given no indication that Jacob was at this point a devoted worshiper of the Lord, right? All signs point to just the opposite. All we've seen thus far would, in, would indicate to us that God was not at the center of Jacob's thoughts and affections. We're given no evidence that Jacob is repentant 
or committed to reforming his deceitful ways, we have no reason to believe that he is pursuing God. And yet in unfathomable grace, God pursues Jacob. Jacob's on the run from Esau, but he cannot outrun the Lord. Up to this point, Jacob was used to getting what he wanted by scheming. He had smooth-talked his appetite-driven brother Esau out of his birthright. He then swindled his brother and lied to his father in order to get the blessing. Jacob was a conniver and a cheat. But God is about to teach Jacob that you cannot grasp his promises by human scheming. Your only hope is to receive them by grace through faith. This account makes clear that God does not descend to Jacob in covenant grace because of Jacob's sterling character or even because Jacob asked for God's help. He didn't ask for God's help. There's no indication of that. Instead, God is the one initiating relationship with Jacob. God meets Jacob and he establishes his promises with him, not because of anything that Jacob is or has done or will do, but simply because God is gracious. Even the fact that God comes to Jacob in a dream concerns this fact. Jacob isn't doing anything. He's asleep. He's totally passive on the ground. And there the Lord pursues him. Beloved, we read of God's electing love for Jacob in the oracle before his birth. That's back in chapter 25. But now we see it in motion. Jacob isn't seeking God, but God is seeking Jacob. All the promises that are about to flow out his direction are grounded firmly in the bedrock of God's grace and nothing else. You know, we've taken the better part of two sermons in this Genesis series to just marvel at God's sovereign grace in salvation. But here it stares us in the face once again. Beloved, if you're looking for the assurance that God loves you, if this morning you're looking for solidity in your faith, you're not going to find it by contemplating what you did to get to God. But what God has done to get to you. You won't find assurance and solidity by meditating on the degree of your spiritual performance, but on God's unmerited grace freely given to you in Christ. Of all the things that God's free and sovereign grace is supposed to do in our lives, perhaps above all, it is meant to rest our fearful, restless hearts in His love. All you have to do is just spend five minutes cataloging your sin in your life. I'm not suggesting that you do that, but all you have to do is do, take five minutes and start ticking off your sins. Think of your past rebellion, your selfish ambition, your lust-filled desires, your hard-hearted hatred of the things of God, your brokenness and aloneness, and yet for reasons that you can't explain, one day you heard the gospel of Jesus and something came alive in your heart. Rather, your heart became alive. For the first time you saw the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Instead of being repulsed as you had been in the past, the gospel enthralled you. Instead of yawning at the love of Jesus, His love captivated your soul in that, mo in that moment. Instead of willingly rejecting Him, you now willingly followed Him. Why? Why did that happen? 
Did you just get lucky? Just randomly at the right place at the right time? No, it was God who worked in you according to His eternal love and drew you in by His grace and granted you the gifts of repentance and faith. That's what happened. The hymn says, My heart knows none above you. For your rich grace I thirst. I know that if I love you, you must have loved me first. Look back at verse 11. And Jacob came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Man, what a scene. Visualize it in your mind's eye with me. The Lord comes to Jacob in a dream, and Jacob sees what the ESV calls a ladder. It's an ambiguous Hebrew word that most likely connotes a stairway or a, a ramp to heaven. So you're not supposed to like visualize so much a step ladder like the you know divine version of Jack and the Beanstalk going up into the clouds. That's not it so much as it, as it is a stairway that links heaven and earth. It's a bridge between the domain of God and the domain of man. It assures us that God, the God of heaven is committed to making the earth his dwelling place. We've seen this thing before, haven't we, in Genesis? Remember Genesis 11? Humanity rebelled against the Lord on the plains of Shinar. They built this tower, right, to try to get to God in the heavens, to storm the gates of, he of heaven. It was a failed monument to human achievement. It's likely that what we're supposed to see here is something similar, yet the opposite. Instead of Jacob in attempting in vain to get to God, to ascend into the heavens, it's God who takes the initiative to descend to Jacob. And what is happening on this stairway? The angels of God are ascending and descending on it. What's the point? Well, I think we're supposed to see the angels of God going to and from the earth as they carry out the Lord's bidding. Thus far in Genesis, just think about it. Anytime we've seen an angel in Genesis, it's been a sign of God's care and of his guidance and provision, right? Just think about it. The angel of the Lord communicated God's care to Hagar when she was abandoned in the desert. Angels helped save Lot and his family from judgment in Sodom. The angel of the Lord stayed the hand of Abraham when he sacrificed Isaac on the altar. The angel of the Lord went before Abraham's servant to guide him into the exact spot that he would find Rebekah for Isaac. We know from the whole of Scripture that, that angels are messengers of God that do his bidding and they often provide help and protection for the people of God. And so what this vision would have surely communicated to Jacob was the providential care and provision of the Lord for Jacob even on his journey. Despite all that Jacob had done up to this point to ruin his life, God is just lavishing his provision and his protection upon Jacob. I think it's clear that Jacob understood this is what the, the point of the ladder was. When he woke up, look at verse 20, he says that, that he, he invokes God's guidance and provision. Do you see that? Jacob made a vow saying, if, if God will be with me and keep me, there's protection in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. That's provision so that I will come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. I think that's what happens. Right? Jacob is regurgitating in his vow what he had seen 
theologically in the dream, he knows that he is in the Lord's care. So what have we seen so far in these opening verses? Well, it's God who graciously initiates. It's God who graciously promises to provide. And now in the next few verses, we see it's God who graciously promises. Friends, let me ask you a question. What do you expect of God at this point when he begins to speak to Jacob? What do you expect? Think about it. Jacob had just lied to his blind father in order to grab the blessing. In his lie, do you remember what he did? He blasphemed the name of the Lord by including God in his ruse. Remember that? So what would you expect from the Lord at this point? A stern rebuke? Discipline? A verbal slapdown? Even in his dream, I, I just imagine Jacob crouching in fear as he sees the Lord there. Had the Lord come down to punish him, to curse him for his sins and his deceit? No, remarkably, the Lord draws near with words of grace. In the next three verses, what God does is He transmits His covenant with Abraham, which He had passed on to Isaac, now to Jacob. Abraham's God will be Jacob's God. In verses 13 and 15, God says really essentially three big things. Number one, first of all, He reminds Jacob of who He is. See that? Verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above the ladder and said, I am Yahweh. I'm the Lord, the God, of your, uh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Friends, when you see, just FYI, when you see the Lord in the Old Testament, especially if you're looking at an ESV, you're going to see the Lord often translated into all caps. You see that? That's the covenant name of God translated by the ESV translators, okay? That's the name of God, Yahweh. It's the covenant name translated in all caps. I am Yahweh. This is not a generic God or some Canaanite deity, but the covenant Lord of Abraham and Isaac. And even though Jacob had just left his family, even though he wouldn't see his father Isaac again for 20 years when Isaac was on his deathbed, the Lord communicates who he is to Jacob using the family connection. Right? Jacob's future is going to hinge on his family's past. Truly. God's faithfulness to his grandfather and his father would now be put on display in Jacob's life. Second, in these verses, God confirms the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob. Look at verse 13. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Okay, there's the land promise confirmed by God. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. That's just like God told Abraham in chapter 13, verse 16. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. <laughs> I love this. In chapter 13, the Lord had beckoned Abraham to look northward and southward and eastward and westward to see the land that he would give to Abraham's offspring. And now the Lord tells Jacob that his offspring will spread in these very directions throughout the land. It's beautiful. So land promise, seed promise, offspring promise, right? Then at the end of verse 14, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There it is. Salvation for the world through Jacob's line. The promise continues to narrow, doesn't it? From Adam in the beginning to Seth to Shem 
to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Land, seed, blessing. What the Lord told Rebekah before Jacob was born, he now confirms to Jacob himself. What Isaac had just prayed for right before Jacob left Beersheba, the Lord now powerfully confirms to Jacob. The promises of God are in motion, and they now fall in the lap of a scoundrel asleep on the dirt on the way to Haran. But there's a third thing that the Lord tells Jacob. Not only does the Lord tell him who he is, not only does he transmit the content of the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob, the Lord secures his promises through his presence with Jacob. And that brings us to our second big point of the sermon. God's promises are secured by his presence. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Can you imagine the relief and the comfort that must have flooded Jacob's soul in that moment? He's about to leave the land of promise. But God's presence does not stop at Canaan's border. God's not a local deity, right? He's not the tribal God of the nomads in Beersheba. No, He's the, the Lord of heaven and earth. God will go with Jacob wherever Jacob goes. And Jacob goes into a land, right? As he exits Canaan, he's going into a land said to be ruled by other gods. Well, the Lord of heaven and earth is going with him. His protection of Jacob extends beyond the promised land to wherever he goes. In order for Jacob and his offspring to inherit the land, he has to come back, right? And the Lord promises just that. He's going to come back. And then the Lord caps it off. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. How can Jacob be assured that God will keep his promises to him? Well, because Jacob's not going to trek on alone. God will be with him. He'll never leave. God's presence secures God's promises. Friends, this is God's calling card. This is God's MO. This is not unusual or unique for God. This is part of what makes God, God. He is not merely the sovereign Lord who reigns over all. Our Lord is not merely the authoritative Lord whose word dictates reality and brings all humanity into account. He is also the covenant Lord, present with His people. Yahweh is God with His people. That's who He is. You know, God's transcendence above all, right, does not mean that He's distant and aloof, but rather that He utilizes His unlimited power and authority and sovereignty for the good of His people to whom He has committed Himself. He wields it for us. John Frame put it so well, theologian, Covenant presence, covenant presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, -E, means that God commits himself to us to be our God and to make us his people. He delivers us by his grace and he rules us by his law. And he rules us not only from above, but also with us and within us. That's God's covenant presence. God wasn't just promising Jacob blessings. God was promising Jacob himself. 
Ultimately, what Jacob could take to the bank was, wasn't, it wasn't that his circumstances were going to be peachy. He's going to have lots of obstacles and challenges. It wasn't that he was going to make a speedy return to, to the land of Canaan to be with his family again. That did not happen. As we're going to see next week, I mean, this sojourn in Haran was fraught with hardship, and he stayed away for years. And so what would sustain him? What's going to be the anchor for Jacob's soul? Is it going to be his, his skill of manipulation? His cunning intellect? No, what would sustain him was the word of God's enduring presence. Brothers and sisters, I want us to, to massage this truth down deeply in our hearts. And I want us to do it by reflecting on God's covenant presence with his people throughout salvation history. Just think about this with me. In God's dealings with his people, in seminal moments in redemption, he counters his people's fear with assurance of his presence. Maybe even when Moses was recording this account of Jacob at Bethel, tears welled up in his eyes as he wrote. Because God had likewise promised Moses the same thing later in salvation history in Exodus 3.12. Moses was afraid to be commissioned to deliver God's people from Egypt and the Lord said, I will be with you. The same was said to Joshua on the brink of the conquest of Canaan, the fulfillment of God's promise to Jacob. And to Gideon, when God called him to conquer the Midianites, don't be afraid, mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you. Fast forward in salvation history. When the nation of Judah is fearful of being annihilated by its enemies, God gives them a sign. And what is it? Behold, the virgin will conceive and will bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Even when the Lord punished his people and sent them into exile, he promised to be with them. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Isaiah 43.2, When you shall pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It's amazing promises. But you know, as glorious and as assuring as these promises are, God's covenant presence was known among His old covenant people primarily through mediators. Through a go-between that connected, if you will, God and man. God promised His covenant presence to be with certain of His covenant mediators, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And of course, God's covenant presence was manifest among His people in the first tab tabernacle, right? And then in the temple in Jerusalem. It was there that the priests would mediate this relationship between Yahweh and the people. So great is our sin that access to God is only achieved through the bloody sacrifice of animals, representing the, the substitute of a life on behalf of the people. God's people deserve death, and the bodies of bulls and goats and lambs took their place. But then the page of redemptive history turns when a virgin girl from Nazareth miraculously conceived. The angel told Mary, you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us.
No longer will God's presence be mediated through another. The preeminent, all-sufficient mediator between God and man has arrived, the man Christ Jesus, our perfect prophet, priest, and king. The word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Early in his ministry in John 1, when Jesus called Nathanael to be one of his disciples, we read it earlier. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Ding, ding, ding. Right? Jesus, what is he quoting? What's he quoting? Genesis, Genesis 28. Jesus is quoting the account of Jacob's ladder. Heaven is open, just like with Jacob's dream. The angels are ascending and descending, just like with the dream. But where in the world is the ladder? Where's the link between heaven and earth? It's him. It's him. Jesus says, I am the far greater way of access than any heavenly ladder could ever be. I am the bridge between God and man. Friends, Christ Jesus is the new Bethel, the house of God. Jesus is the means by which God is revealed to us and the means by which he is worshipped. That's why he said in Jerusalem, destroy this temple. Three days, I'm going to raise it back up. Why? Because there's some miraculous construction project about to happen? No. But his own death and resurrection, he is the new temple. There's going to be no need for the blood of bulls and goats and lambs to shed any longer because he, the perfect lamb of God, is going to give his life on behalf of the people. And by his death, he's going to reconcile a people to God. The veil of the temple, you remember what happened? Jesus is hanging on the cross, bearing the sins of his people, and the veil of the temple that separated mankind from the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, tears in half from top to bottom. And the way to God is opened. Access to the Father for you and for me, secured by Jesus, the sin-bearing Savior for all who would trust in Him. And then on the third day, on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and He ascended to the Father, paving the way for us to follow to the presence of God. You know what? It would be enough if He just stopped there with His ascension and His intercession for us. But He didn't. The ascended Jesus then poured out His Spirit upon His people so that God's covenant presence does not merely sit at the right hand of the Father, but dwells within His people. Jesus said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is unbelievable grace. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to understand Jesus is the way to God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Paul, or the apostle said at Pentecost, there's no name under heaven and earth by which we must be saved. No other name. Your best efforts cannot get yourself to God. No self-effort to hoist yourself up and pull yourself up by the, the bootstraps with good old American independence is not going to cut it because you have a problem of sin. Your sin has condemned you before God. And without Christ, you stand under God's wrath. But in God's amazing love, 
the Father sent the Son to bear the sins of the world. He loved you so much he came down to pay the price for your sin if you'll trust him. If you'll lean on him fully for salvation and repent of your sins, you'll find him to be an all-sufficient Savior, your perfect prophet, priest, and king. A couple of years ago when our daughter Hadley was just coming to understand the concept of death, I remember her asking Lindsay, uh, Mommy, will you die someday? It's not a question you love to hear your kid ask. I remember Lindsay saying something to the effect of, yeah, if Jesus doesn't come back first, yes, there will be a time when I die. I could just see the wheels turning in Hadley's little four-year-old mind or whatever it was. She was contemplating the reality that someday mommy might not be around anymore. You know what? I wish I could assure my kids with 100% confidence there will never be a time when mommy and daddy won't be there for you. We'll always be with you. But friend, that's just not true. Despite my best efforts, be a Hall of Fame parent, it's just not true. It's wishful thinking. There's going to come a day when we won't be with them anymore. You know, the beauty of the gospel is that when you come to God through Jesus Christ, there will never be a day where you will not know the presence of God for the rest of your life and for the rest of eternity. Full stop. God's promises to you are secured by His presence with you. I think there are a couple of common temptations when we think about God's covenant presence. Number one, to evaluate God's presence with us based on our experience with people in our lives. And number two, to evaluate God's presence based on our feelings. You know, there may be some of you in this room that have a hard time grasping the promise of God's presence with you because what you've known in your life are people whom you thought you could trust abandoning you or letting you down or leaving you to fend for yourself. Perhaps it was a parent who left. Maybe it was a friend who turned their back on you, a colleague who betrayed you. So friend, if that's you, take care not to evaluate God's love and His continuing presence with you as His, as His people through the lens of those who have let you down. Evaluate God's love and His continuing presence with you through the lens of the gospel. Don't assume that God will let you down because others did. Instead, you need to see the glorious contrast between sinners and the Savior. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. He is with us to the end. Others may be, of you may be evaluating God's covenant presence based on your feelings. You say, well, John, it just doesn't feel like the Lord is with me. Just look at my circumstances. Look at my suffering. Look at the dryness of my heart. Beloved, our feelings are not the barometer of reality. Our emotions and feelings are to be the caboose that follows the engine of God's truth, not vice versa. If you're Christ, God has said He will never leave you or forsake you. Your feelings are not the assurer of God's promises, of His presence. The cross and the empty tomb are. Your feeling of aloneness is not the final arbiter of reality. God's Word is. 
And he has said that he will be with you to the end. So when fears arise in your heart that would cause you to doubt God's word, don't put your fears and your anxieties and your worries on loop in your head. Don't listen to yourself. Preach the good news of God's covenant presence in Christ to yourself. Call your fearful heart to rest in his promises that he is with you to the end. When Jacob awoke, according to verse 16, he was immediately aware of the presence of God and was just overwhelmed by it. He said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. I think this is a very appropriate response that we see here in verse, the next two verses, verses 18 to 19. Jacob, what does he do? He worships. The stone that was his pillow now becomes a pillar of witness to God having met him there. He named the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And then in verses 20 to 22, Jacob makes a vow to the Lord. It's the first vow recorded in the Bible. Now you might have noticed that that vow sounds a little fishy. It sounds like Jacob is setting conditions that God must meet in order for him to follow the Lord and to worship Him. And that may be what's happening, but I don't think so. I, I don't think Jacob is putting the Lord to the test at this point, even though he's a baby Christian. He's got a ton of growing to do, but what I think he's saying is something to the effect of, Lord, you've made these great promises to me. You've promised to be with me. You've promised to keep me and to provide for me. You've promised to bring me back to Canaan. And if indeed you do as you say you will do, then you will be my God. I think there's an, an implicit prayer here in Jacob's part. He wants God to do what he said he would do. And if he does, Jacob promises to build God a house, which his descendants would do, right? And he promises to tithe a tenth of what he has, just like Abraham did with Melchizedek earlier in Genesis. He worships. Brothers and sisters, in closing, I don't know how the Spirit might be applying this text to your heart this morning. Perhaps you're fearful in your evangelism, and the Lord is using this text to strengthen your resolve and your boldness. Maybe, maybe right now you're passing through deep waters. You feel like you're walking through the fire. And the Lord is reminding you that you don't pass through alone. But perhaps the best application of this text is that we respond like Jacob did. With a heart full of awe and a bowed knee of worship. That we simply stand back and rejoice and marvel that God would love us like this. As Matthew Henry said, those whom the Lord loves... He will never leave. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you as the God who is with us. We praise you for what we have learned this morning in your word from your dealings with Jacob, the deceiver, the conniver, the sinner. And it's not hard to draw a parallel to what you have done with us. You've met us in grace when we were running from you. You have brought us to yourself. 
You've saved us from our sin and you've promised to never leave us or forsake us. So Father, for those who are here today struggling, oh Father, I ask that you would assure them of your presence with them, of your love for them in Christ, of the great care and protection of their lives. Oh Father, for those who are here and don't know you, they've never known the love of the Father in Christ. They've never known the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Oh, Father, I ask that you would draw them to yourself and grant them the gifts of repentance and faith so that they see the beauty of Christ and they want it and they worship it. Father, we praise you that there's coming a day when all the suffering and the trials of this life are going to give way to eternal joy and we're going to feast in the house of Zion. But until that day, O oh God of Jacob, be our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.